Last spring, I flew to Chicago. I had some meetings, and um, the plane I was on was surprisingly nearly empty. In fact, everybody on the plane had a row all to themselves except me. And just before the flight, um, a woman rushed onto the plane just as the flight attendant was about to close the door. Uh, she came down the aisle, plopped into the, the aisle seat. I like windows. She sat in the aisle, and I thought, no problem. I had my headphones on. I had a stack of reading material in front of me, and I thought, surely she'd get the hint and leave me alone. Well, I was wrong, and within 60 seconds, she had turned and asked a question, then another and another, and I realized how that flight was going to go. I learned that she was a senior at college here in Minnesota, um, that she'd been born in Mexico, that her family had gotten uh, a visa through the lottery system when she was nine, so she came to the United States the summer before um, her ninth birthday. Six weeks after she arrived, she was in school, and she said, by Christmas, I knew English. I asked her if the adjustment had been hard, and she said, not really. She said, I really like school. I did well, and as it turned out, she'd been accepted to a magnet program at a school in downtown Chicago. She had an hour train ride to school and an hour train ride home, so she said, I just did my homework. She worked hard, she did well, and she'd gotten a scholarship to come to school here in Minnesota. She was the first in her family to go to college. Now she was just weeks from graduating. I asked her how she felt about it, and she said, I'm excited, I'm scared, I don't know what's going to happen, but... um, uh, then she asked what I did. Now, I just have to tell you that generally when I tell people what I do, they, there's a big O, and then conversation ends, but that was not her. She brightened up a bit, and she says, well, I've been thinking about God a lot recently, and she started in asking questions. She told me she'd been raised Catholic, but that her father was an atheist, so they didn't go to church a lot, so she said, I don't really know much about Christianity. And then she said, can I ask you a question? Like, I had a choice, and I said, sure. She said, what's the deal with Mary? And so we talked about uh, Jesus' mother. We talked about the different ways that Catholics and Protestants view Mary. And I told her that both traditions think that Mary is really special. She was surprised to learn that Mary was likely a teenager when Jesus was born. And she didn't really understand. had never heard about the scandal that surrounded his birth and her pregnancy. And that's why I told her all Christians see both Mary and Joseph as people of great faith. The conversation wandered away from faith, and then it came back to it, and she said, I got another question. She said, what's a parable? I told her it's a story that communicates a spiritual truth, and that Jesus was a master at telling these kinds of stories, and that they're some of the most famous stories, not only in the Bible, but in all of literature. So she said, what's your favorite one? And I told her, that's easy. I said, I really love the parable of the prodigal son. Well, She hadn't heard the story, so I gave her a quick plot summary. I told her that there was a father who had two sons, that the younger son asked for his inheritance. He received it. He left. Uh, He went away, spent every penny partying until he was not only out of money, he was hungry. And about to starve, he decided to return home to ask his dad for forgiveness, not to be returned to the household as a son, but as a servant. But when he was a long way off, his dad saw him coming. He ran and embraced his son, even before the son had ever even asked for forgiveness And he hugged him and threw an incredible party. Well, it was clear the story grabbed her. And she said at the end, she said, I certainly didn't see that coming. And I said, what? And she said, well, I was sure that the father would punish the son. I said, yeah, that is surprising. In fact, that's why some call this story not the story of the prodigal son, but the story of the forgiving father. I do believe that the parable of the prodigal son is the most important story that Jesus told. It's a story with a difficult beginning, but a wonderful ending, 
And we even know culturally that when the son asked for his inheritance, what he was really saying to his father was, I wish you were dead because inheritances were not passed on before someone died. So this prodigal child did more than go off to college and party a little too much. He turned his back on his family. He went away and he never expected to return. His dad was fully within his rights both to refuse his son's request and to punish him. And then when he returned, he was under no obligation to receive him back. The last couple of months, we've been in a series called Spiritual Urban Legends. So if an urban legend is a story, a belief, a bit of folklore that gets passed around as fact, a spiritual urban legend is the same sort of thing. And this week's legend is all good people go to heaven. Now, a key question to ask here is what does it mean to be good? Or you might even say the corollary to that, what does it mean to be bad? Or as I asked in a sermon a few years ago, what, are people basically good or basically bad? That, by the way, is a question that philosophers have debated for a long time. Now, I don't want to go into the debate here, but most conclude that we're kind of a mix of both. We have the capacity to do great good, and yet we have the tendency to do some pretty mean and nasty things to one another. In fact, if we're honest, we'll admit that we have a tendency to mess things up, sometimes a little and sometimes a lot. And that isn't just true of others. It's also true of ourselves, although we're not always honest enough to admit it. We have ways of making excuses when we make mistakes. Um, There are times we'll admit when we're a little cruel or maybe a lot of bit. There are times when we let greed get out of control and we try to grab onto things that really belong to others. And there have been times perhaps in our lives when we've not been faithful in a relationship or we've given into a temptation that we really knew uh, wasn't right. And these things can even become compulsions, even addictions, and we find ourselves powerless to break these patterns. But at the same time, we're remarkably capable and remarkably good at stuffing these thoughts, at getting busy or getting distracted or looking at others around us and saying, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We comfort ourselves uh, on the goodness scale that we're better than average. We're not serial killers or even semi-serial killers, so we think we're pretty good. Although the problem is, we're really not as good as we think we are. My wife Kathy and I moved to Switzerland a year after we were married. Um, I got a job there with General Mills. I was working for General Mills. They sent me on assignment there. And before we came back three years later, my Minnesota driver's license expired. And I had to go to the DMV to get a new one. Although I postponed it first for a year, and then a second year. I just never really got around to it. And then finally decided I needed to do it. So I got a copy of the state driving manual. I memorized it. I went into the DMV center, a little touchscreen thing, and I took the test, and I got 30 out of 30. I aced the test. And then I found out that because my license had expired, I have to take the driving test. And I thought, no problem. I got in the line. I got waiting there for an examiner to uh, let me take the test so I could get that out of the way. I should have known that things were not going to go well when I sat down in the car and he asked to see my license, and I handed him this, my Swiss driver's license. These are good for a lifetime, so I can go back to Switzerland and drive without any, any problem. And uh, he looked at it, and he said, by the way, he said, when did you get back in the United States? And I told him, well, 1995, that was two years uh, from the time that I took the test. And he informed me that I had been driving illegally for two years, although really he wasn't informing me. He was scolding me. And I thought, oh, well, I'm a pretty good driver. I'll get this over, and we'll move on, and I'll have my license. Well, we started out, and he gave me directions. He wasn't a very loquacious man. He said, go straight, go right, go left. Um, He told me to park on a hill, uh, told me to merge onto uh, a freeway. We were gone about 30 minutes and got back into the 
parking lot, and I thought, good, okay, we're done. And he sat there for a couple minutes checking a lot of boxes, and then he handed me his report, and at the top it said that I had failed. Now, he then explained to me in detail all of the things I'd done wrong. There were more than 10 violations. I had uh, rolled every stop sign, parked incorrectly on the hill, changed lanes improperly, and so on. And then he said to me, of course you know you can't drive home. You'll have to call your wife to come and pick you up. You do not have a valid driver's license. So I went back into the waiting area of the testing center, my tail between my legs. I sat down and I waited till he went out with another driver. Then I got in my car and drove home. (laughs) And two days later, I went back. Uh, This time I actually sat in the parking lot and waited until I saw him go out with a student or... Went in, got in line, got a different instructor, um, and I went out. So what did I learn? Well, I learned that the standards are really tough, and I learned that I had an awful lot of bad habits. Now, wherever the line is drawn between good and evil, between acceptable and unacceptable, between kind and cruel, clean and dirty, we're always going to find ourselves on both sides of the line at the same time. The bad news is that if we're honest, we have to admit that we're guilty, All the denial in the world won't change the reality that we're messed up. And sometimes it can even keep us up late at night, really wishing that we could go back and rewind the videotape on a few days and maybe more than a few days in our lives. But we can't. And that's why one of the typical responses to that feeling is to try really hard to make up for what we did wrong. Now, maybe you've seen the show My Name is Earl, and I know some of you won't admit it. You're far too sophisticated to... uh, admit, at least in public, that you'd watch some kind of redneck show like that, but uh, you have. And just in case you've missed it, let me just tell you the premise of the show. So Earl is a petty crook. He gets a lottery ticket. He wins $100,000. He's celebrating, and in the midst of celebrating, he gets hit by a car, ends up in the hospital, and loses the ticket. And while he's there getting treated, he's watching television, and he sees a late-night TV show, and it has to do with the concept of karma. He decides at that point to turn his life around, so he makes a list of all the things he's done wrong, and he says one by one he's going to go make those things right and fix them. And after doing his first good deed, he finds the lottery ticket, which then helps him fund some of his efforts to try to do, to make up for all of his mistakes. Now, karma is about cause and effect. Um, We've either done, everything we've done either creates good karma or bad karma, and positive karma comes through uh, pure thoughts and words and actions. And these things are supposed to be able to reverse the effect of bad karma, redirecting our destiny. So if we do bad things, bad things happen. If we do good things, then good things happen. And many have the idea, whether it's karma or not, that there's a ledger. And basically, if you're a good person or good enough, you'll go to heaven. And so many like Earl figure out that if they can just do enough good things to cancel out the bad things, that they'll be in. And the only question that's unclear is what's the threshold? Is it like 51-49, or is, you need a supermajority, you need 60-40, or is it something higher than that? But at some level of goodness, you'll get in. Now, karma is an Eastern religious idea, which wasn't around at the time when Jesus was living on this earth, although the basic idea has been around uh, really since the beginning of time. In fact, most religious traditions are based on this idea, dividing the world into good and bad people, creating a system that says that your spiritual well-being depends on whether you've been good enough. But it's not a Christian idea. In fact, Christianity is both more demanding and less demanding at the same time. It's more demanding for the simple reason that Christian faith says there are no good people. 
To clarify, that doesn't mean that we're worthless or that we can't do good things. Doesn't mean that we're unlovable or that we don't, on occasion, do some incredible things. But the scriptures tell us that we are created in God's image, his likeness, that we have great dignity, that we're loved and capable of doing um, wonderful things. But even then, even then in the midst of all of that, we don't always know do right from wrong, even though we know what we ought to do. Now, we may say, well, by comparison, I'm pretty good. So on the scale from Mother Teresa to Hitler, I think if we're kind of a little above average, we're okay. Or we think, I haven't done anything really big. I haven't murdered anyone, committed adultery, or evaded my taxes. And so we focus on those things to the exclusion of the fact that a whole lot of other things have gone under the radar. We've done things like be greedy and be gossips and slander and jealousy and arrogance. If we're honest, we'll admit that we've done and a lot of good things, but we fail more times than we ought. We maintain a veneer of respectability, but inside we're judgmental, we're greedy and full of lust. As St. Paul once said, we are without excuse, for we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's a downer, isn't it? It makes you wonder why it's even necessary to mention it at all. Why don't we just think happy thoughts and move on? And the reason is, is that if we don't hear the bad news about ourselves, we can't really understand the good. The essence of Christian faith is not a balance sheet. It isn't karma. The truth is, is that nothing we do can make up for the bad stuff we've done. It can only be confessed. If the most important story in the Bible is the parable of the prodigal son, the most important historical event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What the biographies of Jesus tell us is that Jesus lived the perfect life, the one that we should have lived but cannot, that he died the death that we deserved and took on himself the punishment for our sins punishment that we deserved, then rose again, defeating once and for all sin and death. Essentially, this means that Jesus took upon himself the bad karma that we have earned and gave us his good karma. St. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the truth here is is that by grace through faith, we are saved, not through what we do. But that raises another question. So does this idea of grace, the idea that Jesus will accept us if we repent, if we ask for forgiveness and make him the Lord of our lives, that he'll forgive us, does that mean we can just go and do whatever we please? Well, do you remember my friend on the airplane, the one who asked me my favorite Bible story? She also asked me what was my second favorite story that Jesus uh, Told And I told her it's the parable of the Good Samaritan, a story that we mentioned here a couple of weeks ago. She'd heard the term Good Samaritan, but she didn't know what it meant, and so we talked about the story, how man was traveling through a dangerous area, that he was beaten and attacked by some robbers who left him for dead, and how two different religious leaders, respectable people, walked by and didn't help to treat him. And then a foreigner, somebody that the Jews looked down upon, not only stopped, but he helped him. He carried him to a place where he could be cared for and paid that he might be treated. And she said, that's a great story. You know, these two stories, I think, really work well together. The prodigal son story reminds us of the radical love of God for us. The love that motivated Jesus to die on the cross, making forgiveness possible and giving us the hope of eternity. And the Good Samaritan story tells us how to live out that story in tangible ways with expressions of love for others. At the very end of the Good Samaritan story, Jesus asks his listeners, um, which of these men 
is a neighbor to the man that was attacked. And they say the one who showed mercy. He says, that's right. Now go and do likewise. Our salvation doesn't depend on being good people. If, if it did, we're screwed. But it also isn't simply a matter of having the right opinions. As those who've experienced God's undeserved grace, out of gratitude, we need to go and do likewise. That means volunteering to work with the dying, serving the poor, comforting the afflicted, caring for the immigrant, standing up against injustice, loving those who look different from us, and living righteous lives. Not, doing these th- not that doing these things will get us to heaven, but these are the sort of things that people who are going to heaven do. We do these things motivated by God's extravagant grace for us. And the benefit in this whole equation is, is that the good that we do is motivated by God's amazing grace for us. Now, I would go so far as to say that while good works don't save us, they do show other people that we are saved. St. Paul said in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, he said, For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So he's saying, your faith comes by faith, um, not by what you do. And then he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, Jesus' disciples um, who were with him during his lifetime heard both of these stories firsthand. They were also there when he was arrested, when he was tried, when he was condemned, and when he was crucified. And then on Easter Sunday morning, they were shocked. They were lifted out of despair when he appeared to them once he'd risen from the dead. And that day changed their lives. From that moment on, the good news of the grace that came to them in Jesus Christ became the compelling passion of their lives. They committed themselves to tell everyone they knew about him. They were willing to risk everything, even their lives, because Jesus rose from the dead. They weren't motivated to go to the end of the earth because all good people go to heaven, but because a perfect man died for us, less than perfect people. I don't know where any of you are here today. Some of you maybe have heard these stories before. Um, You understand maybe uh, years ago the need that you have for a relationship with Jesus. But I also realize that for others of you, this may be just new news. Perhaps as you've listened today, you've realized that um, it's really hard to be a good person. And like all of us, we never will be good enough. But here's the really good news. God's not left us on our own. In fact, he's issued an invitation to each one of us. And my hope is that today, if you've not yet received that invitation and made a commitment to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to receive what he offers us, each one of us, that you would find peace and meaning and purpose, guidance and strength and hope that comes not just for now, but for eternity. St. Paul was a man who was very honest about his failings. If you read the New Testament, you'll find that not only did he talk about his failings before he became a follower of Jesus Christ, he talked about his struggles once he'd made that commitment. He was a very honest man. And yet he also reflected on the grace that had been offered him and us in Jesus Christ. And in Romans 5, 8, he said, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Tomorrow morning, I'm getting on a plane for Los Angeles, and I doubt I'm gonna have another conversation like I had back in April. Um, I don't usually have conversations like that with total strangers. Usually it takes months, sometimes even years to have that kind of conversation with someone. But here's what I know, and that is that the same kind of spiritual hunger that 22-year-old had for, go- for God's love is universal. Our need is great, but even more is the provision we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, 
the very bad news is that we are people who fall far short of what you would want for us. We're sinners. We're broken people. And yet, and yet your son, Jesus Christ, loved us enough to live and die on our behalf. And then being raised from the dead, show us that he can overcome the power of sin in our lives and in this world. We pray, Father, that we would embrace that forgiveness, that we would find hope, not just for now, but for eternity. And then we would do, as Jesus encourages the listeners to that story about the Good Samaritan, we would obey, that we would do good to go and do likewise. We pray this in Jesus' name.